Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 134 of our humble little podcast. As always, my name is Dr. David C. Noe. I am here on a sunny and quite warm November afternoon with my good friend and fabulous co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you doing uh, this afternoon, Jeff? I'm doing great. I'm, li- I'm loving the sunshine out there. Right before you pulled into the parking lot, I yes. was on my phone, I was, I was uh, reading, uh, there's a poem about November oh. by Robert Frost. And, ah. and he talks about uh, attempting to kind of learn to love the bare November before the snows come. And it's a very kind of... Interesting. It's kind of very dark and dreary... American poet, right? Yes, right. Uh, and he's the, the road not taken guy, yes. right? And, um, but his sentiment in the poem was very much at odds as how I was feeling about November uh, sitting there in the bright sunshine. So yeah. you were feeling great about November because it's, uh, it's 49 degrees, there's some sun, the leaves are blowing out of my yard and into the neighbors, which yeah, is perfect. That's always good, isn't it? <laughs> and so, you know, Frost didn't leave you cold this time. He did not yeah. leave you cold. Nicely done. Huh. So this is also my birth month. Oh, that's so correct. In a few days. I you think. share a birthday uh, with one um, Augustine of Hippo. That's true. That's right. Yeah. Um, that's probably, uh, uh, on the, the, of the list of the birthdays I share with, that's probably the, the very top. That'd absolutely. Be, that'd be hard to top that one. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right. But also my brother-in-law and my late grandmother. It, uh, so it's a big day. Is that right? Mm-hmm. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So... I actually have, Jeff, yes. um, since, you know, this is uh, ostensibly a podcast, but more it's just kind of inane banter between you and I. There's a lot of that. You yeah. and me. Um, yep. I have a, a fabulous birthday present for you this year. You do? Yes, that you're going to really enjoy. Really? Are you, you going to keep me in suspense? Or yes, absolutely. Oh, all right, all right. Today's only, what, November 4? Yes. Yeah, so nine more days. Nine more days. Okay. Oh, I look forward to this. All right. Fantastic. You will enjoy it. <laughs> all right. Or else. <laughs> <laughs> so, it also feels good to... Um, uh, to be recording here in the afternoon. Yes, you know, I don't. I don't mur- burn the midnight oil like like you can. You don't look abrate. Yes, I do not. I do not yet. But uh, you're feeling all right today. I'm feeling great. Yes, yes. I can burn the midnight oil, but I prefer to burn the afternoon oil. Yes, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're gonna have a high energy episode today, yeah. filled with lots of ridiculous puns and maybe um, some actual learning. Is that the plan? We'll we'll see about that second okay. part. All right. Yeah. So, uh, Dave, um, um, before we get into yes. the topic of the day, I believe we have some Corrigenda to we get to? We do. Okay. We have a number of them. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, no. And, what happened? Uh, well, I'm uh, standing here shamefaced. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the first is, in the last episode, I made some reference to The Man in the High Tower. Mm. And, um, of course, there is no novel by Mr. Philip K. Dick of such title. It's entitled The Man in the High Castle. That's right. So, very okay. sorry, listeners. And yep. what does this prove? Uh it, sh- yeah. it proves that Dave should not try to drop pop culture references. Well, yeah, and I'm also, I'm also, I'm shamed as well because as the self-proclaimed Johnny Pop, that's right. I didn't correct you. You didn't catch I said, it. Oh yeah, tower. Of course, your, it's tower. your filter is not fine enough. <laughs> it's not. I'm just, right. I'm slipping errors past you left and right. <laughs> yes. All right. So that's it for our Corrigenda, right? That's, no, that's, no. There's oh, two more. Oh, okay. All right. Where, where do we I go? made some reference to Dwight D. Eisenhower, the yeah. late American president, and how he made a kind of, um, I don't know what the term is. Vanilla comment about the relationship between American citizens and civil religion. Mm. And I was not really even close. Okay. <laughs> so you have the actual quote here? I have here? the okay. actual quote here. All right. So Dwight D. Eisenhower. And this is how they, meaning the founding fathers in 1776, explained those. We hold that all men are endowed by their creator, not by the accident of their birth, not by the color of their skin or by anything else, but all men are endowed by their creator. In other words, our form of government has no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. That's the part that stuck in my mind. Gotcha. gotcha. Then he follows up with, with us, of course, it is the Judeo-Christian concept, but it must be a religion with all men uh, are created equal. Do you remember, do you know what happened to the context in which he said these words was, I mean, what was... I don't think that uh, I uh, was our most loquacious president. No, Uh, no, I don't think He wasn't quite as silent as Calvin Coolidge. Right. (laughs) But I don't think uh, Eisenhower was much given to the stump. No. So um, I'm not sure where this okay. was, was said. Yes, he don't, does. Don't lead me down the path where I have to say something and then oh, correct sorry, it sorry, again sorry, 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 next sorry, week. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, um, Dwight uh, is not remembered as a great orator. No. No. Eh, 
That's, yep. that's fine. Okay. And then the third and final Corrigendum is um, our generous guitarist, Scott Van Zen. Yeah. I messed up the website uh, okay. for, and this, you know, I feel bad because Scott's given us this great music and there are no doubt lots of classicists all around the country and world who would like to play the guitar like he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, good luck. Yes. Uh, but <laughs> go to uh, scottvanzenguitarschool.com. So, okay. you know, in the interests of uh, good ethics, I wanted to... Uh, Correct that for Scott. Right. So would-be musicians, if you really want to feel bad about your own <laughs> skill and talent, please go to scottvinsonguitarschool.com. Yeah, he's really incredible. So Jeff, do we have a, a shout out today? I don't believe we do. No. No shout out today. Okay. Yeah. And that's fine because I, I have a feeling they're coming in. We have uh, we have our loyal listeners. I right. Think, I feel like there's a lot of them out there who've said, oh, you know, maybe this is They're the doing some lurking, maybe? They're doing some lurking, yes. Lurky-loos. Kind of, yeah, kind of the hiding there on the fringes, but right. uh, they gotta, they're going to come out of the shadows and they're right. going to tell us all about themselves and we're going to honor them by by singing on the air yeah it's a little um it's a little bit of a hallmark of those who study the classics in the ancient world to have a certain type of modesty i would say i think that's true i'm not talking about people like napoleon who tried to imitate you know the accomplishments of alexander i wouldn't charge them with modesty no but i mean uh our listeners right they're they're modest bashful they don't they don't need 15 minutes of the limelight uh, because they're reading thucydides but we want to give it to them absolutely yes all right, so Dave, where, where are we going today? We're going to pick it up where we left off last time. I That's believe, right. right. Okay. Yep, and uh, give a little bit of a review here uh, in case you're just coming into the conversation. We're talking about a very important book written in 1956 in French called A History of Education in Antiquity. And uh, this was written by one Henri-Irene Maru or Henry I. Maru, you know, as uh, we would say around here probably. Uh, who was born in 1904 in Marseille and died in 1977, described himself as a Christian humanist in his outlook. And uh, his work was primarily, here I'm I'm reading from the Wikipedia article, in the spheres of late antiquity. So that goes down to 400, right? 430 is the death of uh, the guy born on your birthday, Mm -hmm. Augustine of Hippo. The spheres of late antiquity and the history of education. So he's best known for this work. He also edited sources Chassien, uh, a number of different things, and uh, a very significant scholar who has combined in one long, meaty volume um, a thorough look at the views of the ancients, both Greeks and Romans, on how to educate children and ourselves more generally. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, as you have been, I assume, thinking about this topic this week as a professional educator yourself, Mm -hmm. can you review uh, just a little bit why um, this might be of importance to our listeners, as we were saying last week? Sure. I think we we touched upon briefly last week about uh, uh, talking about there has been this resurgence in classical education across the country. Right. Um, But we also know that that term, classical education, can mean something very different than just simply doing education the way it was done in the classical era. Right. In some ways, they're, they're very different things. And so I think that, you know, I think we're in the midst of a cultural moment where um, there's a lot of, of, of um, um, things being shuffled about in yes. terms of what makes a, a good education, what makes uh, a, 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 a universal type of public education, in what ways can, can private schools do this differently? Um, you know, can we get back to some kind of basics right. in, in, in terms of what, is, uh, uh, what has universal value when it comes to education? And there's, there is, it's very complex and confusing. That's correct. Did, yeah. you, did you see about three weeks ago, maybe six weeks ago, the story making the rounds about how often men think about the Roman Empire? <laughs> I did, yes. I don't know if that was in an article in The Atlantic or maybe... I saw some, it was Weekly I saw some, reader. I saw something in the New York Times. New York Times. I think it was in, it was in, it was in, it showed up in many different publications. Wasn't Better Homes and Gardens? It, it might have been there too. Okay. Right. Better Homes than yours? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah. what's the deal with that? Uh, you know, I I I skimmed it. Okay. And it, I mean the article that I read was kind of silly and and they were trying to tie it to uh, kind of ideas about masculinity and being synonymous with kind of Roman militarism and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And, and I, I, for me, it was kind of an eye roll. Right. Um, but I mean, it had some kind of things in, in, in there about kind of questions about, you know, why is, why is the Roman Empire seem to have kind of this, um, this popularity that won't go away? Yeah. They were talking about even in Hollywood, it kind of comes and goes, right? It's in, uh, in you a, have, re- a remake of The Gladiator is coming out. I didn't hear that. Uh, a sequel. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, you know, so it seems to be uh, a place where Hollywood kind of comes back to every 20, 30 years. Right. And, and so it was just kind of, you know, kind of scratching its head over that, that kind of perennial um, ebb and flow of its popularity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. did, you, did you read an article about it? No, no, no. no. Uh, several people contacted me and said, here's your moment. 
right? <laughs> People are thinking about uh, the Roman Empire, right? You could sell a lot of Latin courses to them. Right, 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 so. right. Yeah. I, I, uh, um, I talked about it a little bit with my students and, and just some online exchanges. And a lot of them came from, uh, from young women that said, hey, you know what? I think about the Roman Empire a lot too. And they, Interesting. They kind, of, they kind of resented this idea that it's that exclusive it's, to it's one gender, just for the guys, right? <laughs> so, that was really interesting. interesting. Yeah. Well, oftentimes, as a Mahru will make clear, um, the Roman Empire is conjured up in uh, contemporary culture as an example of fascism, right? And this, of course, is uh, because of Mussolini, right? Yes. In large part. And uh, so that kind of inheritance lives on in popular discussion. Right. And I would add to that, that um, I did a, a presentation on this years ago. Um, looking, If you look at um, in some of these you know, Hollywood uh, kind of historical behemoths coming out in the late 40s and 50s that are you know, dealing with the, the classical world. And it's very clear that the Roman Empire in those movies is a clear stand-in for the Nazis. Oh yeah, yeah, right. And so I think that that um, you know that makes so your all-purpose villain, all-purpose villain. So it kind of it goes beyond kind of the you know, the literal fascism of Mussolini and trying to resurrect you know the imagery of the of the Roman Empire. And that, Correct. Uh, to kind of this using the Roman Empire as a symbol uh, for. Uh, you know, uh, Germany right. in the 1930s and the 1940s. Well, it's, and the alliance of, of Hitler and um, Mussolini. Of course. And the borrowing of a lot of fascist symbols, right. you know, back and forth between them. Between, exactly. Readily lends itself to this. Right. And so you have that that popular image of, of you know, the, the jackbooted um, thugs right. goose-stepping into your into your territory. That's correct. Right. And that's a, that's a hard connection to shake. It is, yes. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, on a recent flight... Uh, we'll get to Mahru, don't worry. Yeah. On a recent flight, I happened to watch the most recent um, Indiana Jones movie. You did. I did. The Dial of Destiny. That's correct. Yes. It's about the Antikythera machine. Oh, is the it? The Antikythera. Oh, yeah. Not machine. What's the word I'm looking for? Well, it's kind of that, that strange I guess a machine con- is contraption. Some, right? I've seen, of course, the real thing in the museum in Athens. It's, it's, a, it's not there now, but. It's remarkable. It's incredible. Yeah. I didn't realize it was about that thing. Oh, yeah. And there's even a little um, excerpt where uh, Indiana happens to be plopped down in um, third century B.C. Syracuse while the Romans are besieging it. And he uh, meets Archimedes. There's a spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the movie. So the the Antikythera can take you back in time. Exactly. It's a time travel device. (laughs) Uh, it was better than the previous one about the crystal skull. I didn't see that one. Yeah, either. but I'll just say one one thing I noticed that you might like. Yeah, is that uh, the John Williams theme song music, right? Dun, yes. Dun, 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 dun. Right. You know that that music has just popped into the movie anywhere where the hero's fortunes are starting to improve. Of course. Yeah. And so you know he's kind of down on his luck, but then he sees his hat and his whip, and the music comes in. Dun dun dun. dun. And it's a little bit moving, especially if, um, like many of our listeners, you grew up watching those movies, yeah. as I did. But there was one moment where it seemed especially jarring, and that is they were in uh, Algiers, I think, um, which is in is in Morocco. Yeah, yeah, yes. okay, yeah. And they had no transportation, so they proceed to steal someone's uh, yellow Volkswagen Beetle, and it was the, the uh, did I say yellow? It's blue. It's a blue Volkswagen Beetle. Uh-huh. But um, it was going to be the marriage vehicle, so the the bride and groom were going to ride off in this Volkswagen Beetle. But Indy and his crew steal it so they can chase the villains, and that's when the music cues in. And I thought, wait a minute, they're cueing the the triumphant music because he's stealing a Volkswagen from a from a bridal party. Exactly. <laughs> This is incongruous. Oh my goodness! And I thought, what about if in my life there was some kind of. Um, uh, great theme music that would just start playing whenever my fortunes turned, turned a little bit. It'd be nice to, to exactly to kind of have a little bit of heads up. For exactly, that, right? <laughs> right. So you go to the kitchen and you think, is, is there any coffee left? And you grab the coffee pot and the music cues <laughs> in. <laughs> yes, so, there is coffee left. Right. Oh yeah. That's, so that's really what you know stuck out to me after seeing five of these films. Now. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, Harrison Ford. I mean, what would you think? I mean, he's not. He's not a sprightly young man anymore. He's, I think there was quite a bit of. Um, did they do the de-aging? CGI coming in? <laughs> However, there was a few moments where they made fun of not him exactly, but. The ridiculousness of a man his age being able to do these things. Right. He's in great shape for however old he is. I think he's pushing 80 now. Yeah. yeah. Great shape. So oh. I, I hope I look like that when I'm his age. Yeah. But um, 
yeah, it was it was pretty pretty tasteful on the whole. Good, good mm-hmm. deal. All right, burned a couple hours on a plane, right? Yes, that's so. that's the most important. Exactly, detail. exactly. Yeah. So back to Mahru yes. and classical education. Um, I'll just throw this out here. Uh, my knowledge of classical education as a movement around the country um, is that it relies heavily on this supposed classical schema. And uh, I say supposed advisedly because many of our listeners might take umbrage at this. Okay. And I'm trying to use um, extra heavy, big words to try to conceal, you know, the pungency of my main point. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, it is supposedly there's a grammar stage, there is a dialectic stage, and there is a rhetoric stage. Have you heard this before? I have. Okay. Yep. So the grammar stage is the acquisition of rote knowledge. The um, dialectic stage is the sorting of rote knowledge according to, you know, logical rules and the re-presentation of them in some sense. The rhetoric stage is the presentation of the things you've learned, pulling together all of uh, your previous knowledge and kind of applying it. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a a fair test to put to that schema to see if we find something like that in this book by Mahru. All right. So you're saying, so when we talk about classical education today, you're saying your sense is that uh, um, something that you would say ties most of those schools together is an adherence to this idea. Absolutely. And it is based on an essay by a woman named Dorothy Sayers Mm -hmm. called The Lost Tools of Learning. Okay. And although we're not going to get into this topic directly, I would like to dance around the um, edges of it as we go through Mahru and maybe get to the topic in some later episode. That would be fabulous. And that that is basically the contention that whether or not that method of um, education is useful, and I'm prepared to be sympathetic to the argument that it's very useful, mm-hmm. um, I'm very skeptical of the notion that it is classical. Okay, all right. Um, I don't think Dorothy Sayers even thinks that it is classical. Hmm. It's really late medieval in origin. Now, okay. does that mean people can't use it successfully and happily for the education of their children and themselves? No, of course not. Right. Um, it's just a question of... What exactly are we talking about? Right. And, and, and I think it's important, though, because I think that word classical, you know, conjures up all kinds of, 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 of images and, um, and source material. Absolutely. And so I think, and so I think words are important. Absolutely. Right? So if maybe you know, down the line, uh, you know, a different type of nomenclature should be used for it. Perhaps. Right? But, yeah. Well, neoclassical, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, when I first began studying the classics, when people would ask, so what are you studying? Right. The most common response was, oh, so you are an expert in Shakespeare right. or the 19th century novel, you know, Dickens and uh, Victor Hugo, things like that. Right. Got that all the time. The notion that classics meant Greco-Roman antiquity was fairly foreign then. Yes. Maybe less so now. Was yeah. that your experience also? Yes. That was the um, that was the, the second question I got. Well, the first question I was, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> Would you like fries with that? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. No, a- absolutely. Um, and so, uh, yeah, even, uh, I mean, I don't think that, that that term has gotten any more clearly associated with with antiquity. Not in my, uh, I, when I eat with my students today, when I, when I use the word classical, I always have to kind of define it up front, right? Inside Greco-Roman classics. Greco-Roman classics, right? Not just oldish stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So we have no opening quote because like last week, the whole book is our opening quote. That's right. And we quoted from it uh, extensively. And I think I even was the um, recipient of some barbs from your end about, are we ever going to get out of the introduction? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think those, those, were, um, those were worthy barbs because I don't, did we, did we get out of the introduction? We did. We did? Okay, just barely. Barely. All right. <laughs> so the work is divided into three parts. Part one, seven chapters, Homer through Isocrates. Part two, 11 chapters, the civilization of Paideia which is the mode of educating children, paideia, through the concept of classical humanism. And we're going to have to distinguish between types of humanism uh, as we go on. There's a a classical humanism, there's a secular humanism, and there is the Christian humanism um, of which Mahru is himself an advocate. Okay. As well as people like um, in the Renaissance, uh, Mirandula, you know, the the famous, uh, not gondola, but uh, inventor of the hot air balloon, but (laughs) Mirandula, the famous Platonist in Renaissance. Mm. Uh, Florence, right? Who yep. was um, patronized by Lorenzo the Magnificent. Okay. All okay. Right. All right. So part two, 11 chapters uh, through the concept of classical humanism. Um, we're laying the groundwork, um, but it talks about things like physical education, artistic education, primary school, primary ed, science, and higher education and ends up with the rhetoric. And what about part three, Jeff, of the work? What does that deal part with? Part three uh, it's, uh, has 10 chapters uh, plus an epilogue and it uh, begins with old Roman education 
and ends with um, schooling at the at the uh, um, at the end of antiquity. Right. Yes. Which again down to about four thirty. Yep. And then, as I think is well known, um, the world changed dramatically. Um, they had indoor plumbing right in Britain at the time of the Roman invasion. Um, when the Romans left uh, for the next four, five, six hundred years, um, the British island went backward. Uh, you could say they went forward in terms of their personal liberty. The Romans weren't bossing them around. Right. Um, and that's a good thing. But they went backward in terms of literacy and technology mm-hmm. considerably. Yeah. You're going to see the uh, Boudicca movie that just came out? The, I, I don't know about this either. How Where come I, you? I thought you were been? Johnny Pop. How do you not know maybe, anything? Maybe I'm not. I haven't seen anything about this. I didn't know there was a Boudicca movie. There is that. a Boudicca movie. The okay. Queen of the Ikeni, right? Right. The, the redheaded um, giantess who... Uh, momentarily and successfully resisted the Roman invasion. I did not know this was yeah, coming. Was yeah. it coming out for our, as like a holiday blockbuster? Uh, something like that. Okay. It looks pretty bad. Really? Okay, In fact, it looks as bad it. as that Pompeii movie. <laughs> Do you remember that <laughs> one? It was so bad. It was pretty yes. bad. But I have no problem with those those movies that are so bad that they are they end up kind of going around the bend to being fantastic. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Which I think that Pompeii one uh, reached that, that Oh, point, okay. Right? I, yeah. couldn't, I couldn't watch the whole thing. I didn't get past about a third of it. So. I gotcha. Yeah. So we're in part one, mm-hmm. um, and we... We talked about the education of the um, Homeric uh, chivalrous hero. That's right. As opposed to the notion of the rising scribe. Mm-hmm. An Egyptian and ancient Near East, um, what used to be called the Orient, idea that the scribe was endowed with specific intellectual powers. He was useful to the bureaucracy, the management of the Assyrian and the Babylonian and the Persian Empire. And eventually the scribe became a shaper of culture. Right. So going beyond the keeping of grocery lists and someone who could write poetry and actually influence and control his fellow man um, by the force of his ideas. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Dave, the corner that we're going to investigate today is talking about specifically about Spartan education, yes, right? that's correct. So, so this you, is chapter two of the Mahru book. Do you have a, a quote to open us up? Yes, or? I do. Okay, Here we go. This is it. from page 14, Spartan education. Sparta, being a special example of the Greek archaic culture, naturally forms the second stage of our history. There we can see how Homer's chivalric type of education persisted even when it was developing into something new. Sparta was essentially a military and aristocratic city, and it was never to go very far along the road towards what I have called scribe education. On the contrary, it made it a point of honor to remain semi-illiterate. Even when its meticulous legislation covered nearly everything, Including marital relationships, its spelling, by a curious exception, was never made uniform. In this field, as inscriptions show, there was the most remarkably smug anarchy. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that line. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is something I did not know about Sparta, um, though having studied it quite a bit, you know, in the past and taught on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a point that Mahru makes very evident, and it's brilliant, and that is um, Sparta... Uh, was a- alone among Greek city-states, not for inventing new things on the whole, mm-hmm. new and unusual social structures, but for holding on to the Homeric structures from the Archaic era Right. when the other Greek city-states had, for lack of a better term, progressed. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but so Maru, uh, he, he credits that inflexibility, that hardening, to um, Sparta's fairly rapid decline. Yes, right? he does. Yeah, and because the it, inability to adapt to a changing world. Right, and what really struck me too, and I think at some time, at some point, I had studied this and knew this, is that um, you know the I mean when usually usually when people talk about the Spartans, when you hear about the Spartans, you know, popularly, you're right. talking about Thermopylae. Right. right, you're talking about the militarism, militarism, but particularly the militarism of the. Of the fifth century, yes, and so you have the Persian Wars, and then you have the Peloponnesian War, and what really struck me about by reading Maru's chapter was that was um, well into the Spartan era of decline, particularly when it came to education and the arts. Is that when that when they were kind of reaching those heights of what they're remembered for today right. uh, on the battlefield, they were well on their way out in terms of their cultural influence or imprint. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So on this same page, uh, Mahru says, in fact. What the Greeks themselves regarded as the originality of Laconian, now we should say just for the sake of the audience, um, Laconian is a synonym for Spartan. Right. Uh, the actual Spartiates were a subset within the larger Laconian culture. Right. right? This was the 
uh, elite military corps. So to be a Spartan, you had to kind of aspire to that high level. But the broader culture, which included the subjugation of the Mycenaeans, was um, Laconian. Laconian, right. Yes, good. And the Cretans were similar. So there was a similar um, archaic, conservative, reactionary uh, movement on the island of Crete. What the Greeks themselves regarded as the originality of Laconian and Cretan institutions and customs seems to have been simply a result of the fact that in classical times, these countries still retained certain features of the old civilization, which had everywhere else been lost. It was not the result of any special spirit, any particular Dorian genius, as Muller tried to make out with his racial theories that have been so popular in Germany for over a century. Yes, and then he, so he's writing this in 1956, right? That's so, correct. So the, the, and he's a Frenchman, right? So the 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 uh, memories of Nazi Germany are fresh. That's correct. Yes, okay. And the efforts by some elements of uh, German culture to claim, you know, the supremacy of the Aryans, yes. and, and to find any past militaristic, disciplined society as somehow a precursor of their own um, what fervid dreams. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was really striking. I mean, at a, at a number of places in this in this short um, subsection, he makes those connections with uh, with kind of Nazi race theory, yep. which I thought was really interesting. That's yeah. right. And as this chapter develops, I was struck by the fact that this um, hardening into a militaristic totalitarian state came fairly late in Spartan experience, and there was a tremendous flowering of literature and poetry and art a couple hundred years before this. Right. And this is the the kind of, um, you know, in graduate school, I read the poems of Mimnermus and Tertius. These are the, yeah. uh, these are the archaic um, poems that, that came out of Sparta. I didn't really understand to what extent Sparta was um, early on a competitor for the kind of Athenian brilliance in the field of art. No, uh, nor I. I mean, I read those, those same guys and I, it always struck me as, um, the fact that you know they, they've come down mostly in fragmentary form, um, I always took away from that. Okay, this was um, this is important, but uh, if you when you compare it to the fifth century and that kind of thing going, it, was, it pales in comparison. But yes. Maru's making the argument that there was this, this absolute. I mean, who um, the ones that were directing or what you might call you know Hellenic culture, right? Uh, or the center of Hellenic culture was in Sparta in right. the in the seven hundreds and the six hundreds. Yeah. So on page 16, Jeff, Mauru mm -hmm. talks about the development of the idea of the polis and how it interacts with the Homeric ideal. And he says, whereas the old Homeric ideal of the knight as one of the king's troop had been profoundly personal, the new ideal was collective, devotion to the state, the polis, which became something it had never been in earlier ages, the focus of all human life of all man's spiritual activity. It was the totalitarian idea. The polis was everything, turning citizens into men. Hence the profound feeling of solidarity between them, hence the enthusiasm with which they could devote themselves to the interests of their common land, ready to sacrifice themselves who were mortal for their city, which was immortal. Yeah, yeah, and I believe he, he, he ties that, um, kind of that shift from, kind of the hand-to-hand, -hand, one -on one-on-one combat that you see on the pages of the Iliad That's right. to the development of the phalanx. That's correct. Right, where everybody has to work together for, right. it, for, it, to, for it to function. Yeah. And he quotes from Tertius, whom we just mentioned, quote, It is a noble thing to be in the front of the battle and die bravely fighting for one's country, said Tertius, the finest spokesman of the new ethic. Hmm. So this survived for a very long time because it is quoted or adapted by Horace. Yeah, Dulcus at Decorum, right? Yes, yeah. uh, Propatria Mori, right? Yes. It's a sweet and noble thing to die uh, for the country. Right. This is very different, isn't it, than um, Achilles? Very different than Achilles. Yeah, exactly. That. So um, you're kind of setting aside the, that um, in those issues of, of personal glory or you know immortality for the self is now sublimated to the polis. That's right. Yeah. So he goes on to quote from Tertius again. Uh, Tertius very consciously compares the new ideal of Arete with the old. Quote, I should not consider a man worthy to be remembered, nor think highly of him merely because he was a good runner or wrestler, even though he was as big and strong as the Cyclops, swifter than Boreas the Thracian, more handsome than Titho, richer than Midas or Cinerus, stronger than King Pelops, son of Tantalus, though his speech were softer than Adrastus, and he enjoyed every kind of fame, unless he was also valorous in arms, unless he could stand fast in battle. That is the true valor, Arete, 
the highest reward that a man can obtain from his fellows. It is a good common to all, a service to the city and the people as a whole, when every man can stand firm on his two feet in the front line and rid his heart of all idea of flight. Hmm. So he's saying... That this really unhomeric. Very unhomeric. I mean, he's saying that on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with being as strong as a cyclops. Right. But it's what that you use that strength in service to is what really matters. The community. Yes. The other cyclopses is... is yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great orator, great runner, all of these things doesn't matter if it isn't uh, directed outward. Right. It seems to me in kind of um, like the secular pop culture moment we're in right now mm -hmm. seems to be quite the opposite of what Tertius is saying there. Right? It's uh, Right now it seems to be... Um, uh, kind of the Andy Warhol, everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. Everybody wants to go viral right. for some kind of individual thing, right? And I think that 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 um, the, the ideal of of using one's talents for the benefit community is is lost. Now, we might see that Tertius, maybe is he being a little bit... Um, how much do we take this and say... Oh, Tongue-in-cheek? Tongue well, not tongue-in-cheek, but romantic, mm. right? You know, it's very... Well, it's, it's an ideal. It's an ideal. After which one aspires. Right, but it's another thing to say, well, then therefore, this is what all the Spartans believed, right? And so I think it's always... always it's, it's dangerous when, one, when your, your sources are so few. Right. And then you take that and make it stand in for the whole. Right. Um, but nevertheless, maybe that's... I mean, that's neither here nor there for what we're talking about. But mm -hmm. the, the ideal of the community over the individual, I think, is... Uh, unhomeric. It's very unhomeric. Um, and this is a striking shift. It is. Yes. And the way that the Athenians developed the notion of the community over the individual, it seems to me like they never completely developed it uh, fully, and they resisted it. Yeah. But do you think that... Um, I was talking in one of my classes the other day about... Why is so? Why, why does so much that we kind of value in Western civilization society come out of Greece and not out of another country? You know, was there something extraordinary about the Greeks, or particularly the, we, were, we were talking about the Athenians right. that made them different? And I suggested to them that you know one of the hallmarks of you know, Athenian society was the agon, right? Everything is a contest, everything is yes. a competition, a highly agonistic competitive right. society, and exactly. And that competition you know, ends up producing a lot of wonderful things, but it also, in some ways, is the enemy of community, uh, wouldn't you say? That it, it can, it can, it is definitely the enemy of one particular conceptual conceptualization of community. Yeah. Yes, and so, but I think there was a an openness in the Athenian democracy that you didn't have in Sparta. Definitely. Um, and that can be a, 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 an incredible thing that can allow for the flowering of a lot of the stuff that we know flowered. Correct. But it can also leave open uh, the doors for, for factions. I think even Maru talks about that, you know, near the end of the Peloponnesian War, you even had factions in Athens that were kind of... Highly sympathetic to the Spartans. Exactly. Right. And wanted to be ruled by them. <laughs> right, right. Yes, right. later in the same chapter, we will get to what has long been called the Spartan Mirage, mm -hmm. which is the notion that um, most of our knowledge of the Spartans is filtered through um, reactionary Athenian sympathizers. Yes, exactly. So how do we know what really to believe? Right, right. And to connect this to something a little more current, I am 87% of the way through uh, I'm not reading, I'm listening uh, to Ron Chernow's um, biography of John D. Rockefeller. Oh, yeah. Called Titan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen that title. Yeah, it's well worth reading. Really? Uh, or listening to, um, I think at least. And so this is, the, this is the crux of the whole book. Is uh, Rockefeller a hero for um, founding Standard Oil and donating $580 million to um, medical research and the University of Chicago? Mm-hmm. Or is he a villain who has outcompeted, you know, all of his rivals through nefarious means and put himself above, quote, the community? Hmm. So interesting. Right. So uh, can you give us a, a where's Cherno kind of coming down on the side of that question? Or, well, um, <laughs> I think that if he were to come right out and say uh, Rockefeller is innocent of most of the things said of him, it wouldn't make a good story. Yeah. Um, and I think that Cherno doesn't believe that. Rockefeller is innocent of all the bad things that have been said of him. Right. But he does uh, very judiciously refute some of the more outlandish claims here and there. Okay. But the the overarching um, a message, I guess, is that you can't really quarrel with the progressive political notion that makes Teddy Roosevelt the hero of trust busting. Hmm. So hmm. I don't think Cherno is going to um, going to deny. Uh, the the halo that's over yeah. Teddy Roosevelt for trust busting. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Though I may be inclined to. Right, okay. 
<laughs> so maybe that's a connection to Sparta. Okay. All right. Right. All right. The um, a person like Rockefeller, I don't think, could arise in uh, Spartan society. Yeah. Because the extreme um, competitiveness is definitely seen as contrary to the good of the community. Yeah. All right. Now I'm I'm anticipating a question our audience might have. So, so um, we've been talking for a, a number of minutes now about Spartan militarism and the value of of being the soldier on the front lines with your fellow soldiers right uh our listener might be asking okay what does this have to do with education yes like you know what what, what's being taught or learned or read or done great question okay bottom of page 16 here's here's the money quote says malheureux it would be a good deal less than the truth to imagine that this education of the spartans had already become a matter of learning the art of war and nothing more it meant more than that it still preserved many other features of its knightly origin, especially the delight in all kinds of riding, sports, and athletics. We have enough records of the Olympic Games to know what a high proportion of victories went to the champions from Laconia in these sports. These are shocking numbers, Jeff. Sparta's earliest recorded victory dates from the 15th Olympiad, 720 BC, between 720 and 576. So what is that, 150 years about? There were 81 known Olympic winners, and 46 of these were Spartans. Holy smoke. So if you were a Spartan, you won half of all Olympic competitions. So look the Yankees. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or the Bulls in the 90s. Yeah, totally. Right. Or the, or the Bradys. I'm sorry, the Patriots. The Patriots, right. right. Exactly. That is, that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, those are some powerful stats. Right they are. There. They're right. incredible. Right. Um, and I like how also Maru talks later about you know, once uh, kind of Spartan culture starts to harden, starts to decline they disappear from those victories. Exactly. That's, that's, so, that's so amazing. He goes on, in the all-important running event, the stadium race. So this is like the 100 meters, right? This right. is Usain Bolt, Shikari Richardson, um, Florence Griffith Joyner. Yes, right? the, the world's fastest humans. Exactly. Yes. 21 of the 36 known champions, 21 of 36 were Spartans. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. It's like the Jamaican dominance of world sprinting. Totally. Right. Right. We've talked, we have a shared uh, love for track and field. Yes. Yes. And I, because so we're I, both so fast. I love that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Wish fulfillment fantasies. Right. Yeah. I could do that. Which part could you do? Sit on the sidelines <laughs> and cheer? Exactly. Right. As long as it's not too exhausting. And then I, I might have to lie down <laughs> if right. cheering too much. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's arguably my favorite sport. Uh, to mm-hmm. to watch and yeah. I just find it so interesting. I like that it's over quickly. Right, it doesn't, I, doesn't take four hours exactly. Like but soccer, I, I like I like sports that are it's like the man or the woman against the clock, right? Or it can be measured in distance. It's clear. It's, it's very clear. Mm-hmm. Right, there's no ump that right. has to come into this. Right, exactly. You don't have some teammate letting you down. Right. So what does this have to do with education? Yes, page seventeen. These successes at the Olympics were due to the excellence of their methods of training, as much as to the physical qualities of the athletes. Okay. So in other words, Mahru is making the claim that the Greeks as a whole were probably more or less even. I don't think there's an especially genetic claim here about the individuals, right? But certain people groups in the modern world tend to dominate certain sports. Right. With lots of exceptions, but we were just saying, like, the Jamaicans dominate um, sprinting. Yes. Um, Why? Well, it's a combination of genetic giftedness, I guess, and superior training. Right, right, right. So he says, we know from Thucydides that two typical innovations in Greek sporting technique were attributed to the Spartans. Hmm. They had two technical advances. Complete nudity. Instead of the wearing of tight-fitting shorts, which had been the custom from Minoan times. Well, hold on a second. Okay. I, mean, I love how Moreau just kind of drops it in there that it's, it seems to be, he seems to think, think it's completely obvious that competing right. in the nude versus wearing some kind of ancient spandex would be uh, would be an advantage. Well, I think that's the problem. There was no ancient spandex. Well, the tight-fitting shorts. But that's... it's all restrictive. Well, the great advantage of spandex is that apparently it's like you're not even wearing it. Do you remember when Michael Phelps, the swimmer, right, was winning all of... It is Michael Phelps, right? Yeah, w- yeah, yeah, Winning all of his um, right. medals and so forth. Someone developed a suit that could actually make you go faster in the water, and the suit had to be banned because it gave a certain kind of advantage. Okay. I guess what I'm saying is that I, it's, it strikes me as kind of very strange to say that competing in the nude is an obvious better thing 
than wearing the tight-fitting shorts. I don't think anywhere Mohu says it's obvious. Well, well, he's saying that's one of the developments, right? He's a, that's it's one a of the advancements. technical innovation. In, okay. It's a typical innovation in Greek sporting technique. But he's he's claiming that the Spartans had an advantage by it being... It gave them an advantage. By being They could nude. run faster without being encumbered by clothing. Okay, all right. I don't okay. think we can talk about this any further with decorum. <laughs> okay, all right. As far as we can go. All right, okay, let's, let's move on. The second technical innovation yes. was the use of oil mm-hmm. for embrocation. Well, now what in the world? I had to look it up. Okay. Embrocation. Okay, what is that? It's the application of oil for the massaging and um, a relief of pain in one's joints from sp- uh, sprains and, and splints and okay. so like strengths. An, an and ancient like uh, icy hot. Yeah, like that. Right. right. You so, get a you get a bad ankle, you warm up some olive oil, you rub it on there. It's a homeopathic kind of remedy and you're good to go, run another 100 meters. So you could, the Spartan athletes could get to the sidelines and the, uh, get, almost get like a cortisone shot. Yeah, um, and in where their competitors in other city states didn't have didn't have that training knowledge. This is Mahru's claim. This okay. is this is a part of Spartan innovation. Why they won twenty one out of thirty six of the uh, you know the stadium sprint. Right. Am I, from what I know about the Olympic Games, and then those two things, the the, the competing in the nude and the embrocation become standard. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So every- well, because no original technology you know can be kept to right. if we can call those things technology, right. but can be kept to just one people, they eventually spread elsewhere. Exactly. The early adopters, right, they're using olive oil just like crazy. And yeah. then the rest of us can get some. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he goes on, sport was not for men only. There is evidence that even in the first half of the 6th century, women were taking part in athletics. Plutarch mm. was delighted about it. It was apparently, Plutarch, it was apparently <laughs> one of Sparta's curiosities in Roman times. There are charming little bronzes showing girls running, Holding up the hem of their short sports skirts with one hand. Hmm. Now, I've also I've also heard that um, Spartan women, uh, even in Athens, were held up to be kind of an ideal of of, of you know, being healthy specimens of beauty. Well, and they were, um, as Mahru will say in this very chapter, they were highly coveted by the Athenian aristocracy to raise their children. Right. 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 Yeah. And even the um, the the Caryatids on the the porch of the Erechtheion, I believe, are modeled after Spartan women. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. so uh, that kind of ideal of, of of how a human being should look, right, um, is is part maybe part of that Spartan mirage. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of caryatids, yes, it's time for the ads. All right. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by the good folks at Ratio Coffee. Dave, I had a nice cup from my ratio machine this morning. I'm assuming that you did too. I did. I had a whole pot. Yeah, a whole pot just to yourself. Well, I I'm the only coffee drinker in my family. Oh, really? But I used my ratio eight with the hulking flagon, and I got things going. Uh, brown uh, ground, excuse yeah. me, some wonderful beans in my barraza grinder, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, so a whole pot is really just two and a half cups. Oh, that's not that. That's put not some that whole whipping cream in there. Oh, really? Rich, nice, delicious. I gotta try that. Yeah, you should really I try should, that. I usually just go straight black, but do uh, you? Yes, I did some. Um, my wife and I on Saturday mornings we like to kind of just set aside an hour. Let's clean up the the the, the dump that this house has become over Uh-oh. the week, right? <laughs> And should so, you really say that on the air? Well, she's not listening. She's not listening. <laughs> she would. She'd actually be the first to admit it. Okay. Um, but I took the time in the uh, in the kitchen to kind of lovingly kind of spray down nice. and, and, and hand wash my my uh, my ratio machine, and I realized just what a a sparkling gem it is yes. next to everything else in my kitchen. You've got uh, the uh, stainless steel model, right? Stainless steel with the walnut accents, uh, the, the the ratio eight. You also have an eight with the is it? The, you got the oyster. Oyster. Yes. Yeah, the oyster color with the walnut accents. Right. Very nice. And you graduated from the six mm-hmm. and the four is coming down the pike. Yes. I'm very, we're, we're very excited about that. That's, yeah. And I so, think we're going to give one of those away. Sometime early next year, we're, we're thinking. I'm hoping it's looking yeah. like maybe February, March. Maybe we can even give away a couple. Remember the, the shout out we had last week from uh, one young Hope? Yes. Hope uh, Lad. Off yes. at the uh, University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Disappointed she didn't get in on the, the racial six. Right. I think we'll give away a couple of fours. Uh, excellent. Right. I would say she, it went beyond disappointment. I, there was, I, I, I sensed a little anger in her, uh, in her disappointment. I generally um, like to read into others' uh, emotions <laughs> that they may or may not have. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. right. So um, hopefully, well, maybe Hope can, can maybe win this time around. That's right. Right, yeah. So uh, let's say, yep. listener, that you, um, you've, you've come this far and you think, 
I really want to improve my coffee game. Mm-hmm. Jeff, what do you suggest they do? Uh, they should go to ratiocoffee.com. That's R-A-T-I-O coffee.com. Check out one of these machines, uh, the eight and the six. And as we said, um, you these are not cheap machines. Right. But um, if you're a serious coffee drinker and you want to invest in your coffee future, if you want a machine on your in your kitchen counter that's going to be there for a very, very long time. And work uh, and with w- tremendous consistency. Right. Ne- never fails. Never fails. Um, go to RatioCoffee.com, fi- choose one of these machines, and type in this coupon code, A-N-C-O-4-Z. Yeah. And that will get them... Dave, 15% what? off. But Jeff, what does the Z stand for? Um, man, okay. You're Zippity-doo-dah. You're giving me the Z? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Zippity-doo-dah? Zippity-doo-dah? Yeah. I guess so, right. That'll work. Zamfir, the master of the pan flute? There you uh, go. Something like that, right. So, great coffee. Great coffee. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by the good folks at Hackett Publishing. With offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Indianapolis, Indiana, Hackett has been bringing high-quality materials to a broad audience for many, many years, more than 50, I think, going on 53 years, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yes, I always I always know how long they've been around because it's exactly how long I've been around. That's correct. Yeah. So a long time ago, they thought, you know, Jeff's about to be born. Yeah. Let's start a book company so someday he can promote it. That's the way I like to think about exactly. it. Exactly. So right. I'm at the website right now. Yep. Three things stand out to me. They have a whole category devoted to Asian studies. Mm -hmm. The title of the book is Readings in Classical Chinese Philosophy. It is the third edition. Wow. Then in the middle, Aristotle, Nicomachean Ethics, second edition, translated and introduced by the great C.D.C. Reeve. Oh, yes. I once reviewed his translation of The Republic uh, for Bryn Mawr Classical Review. And and how was it just in a quick in a quick nutshell? It was excellent. Excellent. A, a quick nutshell, you say? I don't know what I'm. Don't nutshells about. go by size? Yeah, just can we just please move along? All right, never All right. mind. Right. Third category: Classical Studies: The Essential Greek Historians by Stanley Burstein. Hmm. So there you got a good indication of the breadth of what Hackett offers. That's right. Yeah, I love their texts. Um, I love it that they are uh, affordable. For a lot of my students don't have a lot of money to to um, to throw around, and in a day and age where textbook the price is is, is border bordering on criminal, uh, Hackett can always come through with an excellent affordable text um, uh, for your own shelf or for the desks of your students. So you'd like to get Teddy Roosevelt in there and bust up those yeah, booksellers. Exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> Rough ride all over them. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So this is what you should maybe do. Uh, listener, here's a suggestion. And by the way, we're thankful for all of you who have been patronizing uh, Hackett Publishing so faithfully. That really helps us as a podcast, as an enterprise. Is Go to HackettPublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, and check out some of their wide offerings. Uh, put some of the books into your little grocery basket. And then what should they do, Jeff? Then in the coupon code box, you type in AN2023. That's AN ad nauseum with the current year. And Dave, that will get them two amazing things, 20% off their entire order and free shipping. Check it out. All right, Dave. So where do we go next uh, as we get back into it? Yeah, we're going to talk about the musical features okay. of Spartan education, which, again, I don't think anyone would associate with Sparta, at least the um, the general knowledge of what it was like. Right. So Mahru, page 17, Spartan culture was not merely a matter of physical training, however. Although it was not very lettered, it was not unacquainted with the arts. As in Homeric education, there was the essential Homeric element of music which was central to the whole culture and acted as a link between its various parts, connected with gymnastics through dancing and through singing with poetry, the only form of literature known to archaic times. Right, right. So uh, poetry pre, uh, predates prose. That's correct. Uh, as the uh, kind of primary medium of, of, uh, of, of education and communication. That's yeah. right. Yep. And then we have a long list of um, Spartan poets and individuals who were there at the Spartan flowering of music and literature. The second uh, catastasis, which existed at the end of the 7th and the beginning of the 6th century, specialized in choral lyrics and produced musicians like Thaletus of Gortina, Xenotimus of Cythera, Xenocrates of Locris, Polymnestus of Colophon, and Sagados of Argos. Hmm. These are now hardly more than names to us, but in their day, they were quite famous. Better known are poets like Tertius and Alcman, who, being lyrical poets, were musicians as well. So all of these individuals patronized Sparta, were honored by, paid for by uh, Spartan civilization, and um, celebrated Sparta as a center of culture. So they went on tour and made sure to hit Sparta as, That's a, correct. as, a, as, the, as the big show? Yeah, like yeah. the famous musician Beck. Yes. 
that, that's feeling a little personal. Why are you laughing? Well, because I'm, I'm wearing the, the T-shirt with his name on it. Is yeah, that, I okay. guess so. All right. All right. Early Sparta, also page 17, had a wonderful series of festivities throughout the year. When sacrifices were made to the city's tutelary deities, there were solemn processions, pompai, like those of the Hyacinthia, in which girls in chariots and boys on horseback paraded to the accompaniment of singing, and there were all kinds of athletic and musical competitions. Generally speaking, the festivals seemed to have reached a high artistic level. There is a marvelous atmosphere of grace, poetry, youth, playfulness, and indeed roguishness, in the fragments which have been preserved of Alcman's Parthenion, incomplete though they are. Now, the, well, one thing that strikes me really interesting about this, if we were to compare this to, uh, say, a modern, typical high school education today, mm -hmm. it is uh, subjects such as music and poetry, dance, uh, even physical education, those seem to be kind of the corners of education that are kind of scrapping for funding. Well, right, and right. entirely an afterthought. Right. Well, exactly. Right. If if they are funded at all. Right. right. And so, I mean, that just seems to be, again, if we're going to come back to this question of right. what does it mean for a classical education to be truly classical, right. then these things uh, have very little place in, kind of, I think, at least a modern idea of what education ought to be. Here's a potential counter argument. Okay. So I agree with you in broad strokes, but here's yes. a potential counter argument. Think of the individual... Uh, who plays the trombone, right, in the marching band, mm -hmm. and then runs back onto the football field and uh, rushes for 200 yards. I'm pretty sure that person doesn't exist. Oh, there are plenty of individuals <laughs> like that. <laughs> that are both on the football team and in the marching band? Yeah, there are plenty of individuals. They are, they are a distinct minority. Yeah, I, would, I would think so. But it's not unheard of. Okay. No, I've, I've seen that. In fact, I, I went to a high school football game recently with you know in the last couple months mm -hmm. and uh, the person that i was there to watch uh is not in the marching band but there were some of the players maybe not the most accomplished who did both okay well we're talking about the exception not the rule though right? yeah and but i'm saying i'm just making the, the broader point what i'm right? seeking to undercut your broader point okay there is an example of the spartan ethos the combination of keen competitive athletics okay and the pursuit of music. Okay. Now, I guess it would only be truly Spartan if after playing the, you know, the trombone solo for the marching band and scoring a touchdown, yes. the individual went out into the center of the field and sat down and read his latest composition of poetry. Right. Okay. That would be pretty unusual, yes. but in some ways more arguably classical. Yeah, uh, agreed. All right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Fair point. Okay. But I think my. So are we on the same page? Well, I think we're on the same page. Have I defeated your argument? No, you, you haven't. You've, <laughs> you've kind of given a very small sliver of an exception to that rule. Okay. Um, but yes, I, I will walk it back very slightly. Okay. All right. You ready for the great refusal? Yeah. What is this all about? You have to be. All right. This wonderful early spring, says Mahru, still page 18, was followed by a disappointing summer. Most historians agree Sparta's steady development in education came to an abrupt halt in about 550. It began with a political and social revolution in which the aristocracy, perhaps led by the ephor, Kilon, destroyed the popular risings that may have been caused by the Second Mycenaean War and at once set about the business of finding suitable means to maintain its power. Mm. Thus began the divorce between Sparta and the other Greek cities, which, on the whole, far from returning to any kind of aristocracy, were tending towards a more or less advanced form of democracy, which was helped on decisively at this stage by the incidents of tyranny. Okay. As he says a lot there to unpack. He does. So he seems to me to be saying is that because of the, um, the political situation that, that Sparta found itself in, having to deal with these local revolts, yes. that the response was to kind of, um, uh, kind of double down on a totalitarian That's right. um, military kind of dictatorship. To go full in. So right. 550, right, there had been a number of... Um, revolts of what they called helots h-e-l-o-t so mm -hmm. this would be northwest mostly of sparta right we were there um in sparta remember we were the year was 2011 yeah and uh, we went to that nice euro shop uh down down the street from well actually where the uh, high school kids play soccer yes remember there is a statue of, of um leonidas, leonidas and yeah. you, you walk south from that point and there on the left there's that great um Suvlaki spot. Indeed. I forgot about that. What happened. Now I remember what yeah. happened. We walked in there and what did the guy say, the guy who's behind the counter? I can't, no, I don't remember this part. He said, where's your colleague, Mark Williams? Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. He knew. He, he, he knew. He recognized, uh, yeah, the, the Calvin College uh, yeah, that, entourage. That's right. That's crazy. And then we went off to the west to uh, Mistra, right? Yep. Climbed the mountain, which was the old um, 
monastery. Yeah. Right? Isn't that Mistra? Mistra, exactly. Yeah. Or Mistras. But, and we also, I mean, we toured the archaeological site of ancient Sparta too. Yes, right? which was fascinating. It was fascinating, but not much to see. No, it's exactly as Thucydides says. Right. Uh, people who come here thousands of years from now will have no idea of just how powerful Sparta was because they didn't build anything. Right. Yeah. But northwest of there, as I understand, is where the Mycenaeans were. Yes. And they formed the slave class that propped up all of Spartan culture. Right. And they were called Helots, H-E-L-O-T. Yes. So around 550, says Mahru, uh, this fellow Chilon, C-H-I-L-O-N, said, we have to control this subclass more effectively, so we're going to cut all of our art and music programs? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, this is one of the arguments that, that kind of puzzled me ab- about uh, about Maru at this point. Right. right? So, okay, they're, they're dealing... I can see, well, maybe a, a revolt. Okay, we have to kind of throw some things out in our desperation to kind of keep control. But how exactly that type of militarism was markedly different than the militarism that preceded it that would necessitate a kind of a hardening and a dispensing of the education he'd been talking about? I didn't quite get that. Yes, I'm not sure it's known. Okay. And so I, I think you're right that Malchru doesn't really talk about that. I, at the point that I think where they, you know, uh, the Spartans are dialing in on authoritarianism, whereas not long after this, we have, you know, Athenians you know, um, experimenting with democracy. That's correct. And so the Spartans are kind of clinging to the old ways while everybody else is trying this new kind of post-tyranny thing. Yes. And Malchru says that even tyranny was a big help to the development of democracy hmm. for the other city-states. Mm, okay, okay. Yeah. Unintended, of course. Right, right, right. He does give a potential answer here as we go on. He says, quote, Sparta voluntarily petrified herself at the stage of development which had made her the leader of progress, meaning in the arts. Mm-hmm. After the annexation of Thereotis, 550, she ceased to be a conquering nation. Politically, the ephors, these were like the senators, right. dominated the kings and the aristocracy dominated the people. There was an oppressive atmosphere of secrecy and police tyranny that weighed upon the citizens, and of course on foreigners too, who had previously been welcomed so hospitably. Okay. So I think there may lie part of the answer. Now, whether it's entirely plausible, but I think the idea is that the introduction of unfamiliar ideas into a culture tends to lead to the development of other artistic forms. Right. And Sparta isolated itself from that. They circled the wagons. And Correct. I think I've also seen... Um, stats that um the that's where you know the spartans eugenics program right kind of they almost kind of inbreed themselves out of existence yes and kind of that that um that obsession with spartan purity Mm -hmm. means just fewer and fewer spartans every year that's correct (laughs) and here's the introduction of a new term um at least new to me you probably knew it but we've talked a lot on this podcast in past episodes about the concept of zinnia. Yeah. It's near and dear to our hearts. Could you say just a little bit about zinnia before I bring in this uh, entirely new concept? Sure. So zinnia is this uh, kind of code of, of, uh, of hospitality. Kind of the clunky term that I learned was guest friendship. Yes. Right. Hyphenated uh, terms are so clunky. Right. Um, but th- this was a, a, a concept that was uh, under the aegis of Zeus, who was the, the, the god of of um, foreigners and strangers. Motel 6. The, the, the idea that the, the, the beggar, the stranger at your door is that you welcome them in, you give them something to eat and as a drink, a time to rest before you even ask them their name. And so kind of that, that openness uh, to the stranger at the gate. Maybe we could drop in something from Odyssey 9 uh, as an example. Sure, from the, 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 the Cyclops episode. That's correct. Yeah. And so, um, you know, judging at um, what's at play at the at the in the Cyclops episode where Odysseus and his men kind of break into the cave, um, Odysseus comes in and they um, he uses the language of Xenia and kind of makes the assumption, the wrong assumption, that Polyphemus is going to abide by these rules of Xenia and that he will have gifts and food for the lost strangers, um, which the Cyclops does not. No, he yeah. says, in fact, the greatest hospitality I'll show you, Odysseus, is... Eating you last. Correct. Right. <laughs> so Mahru says, when he's talking about foreigners now, uh, not welcomed hospitably in Sparta, he says, now they became suspect and lived under the continual threat of expulsion, Xenilasia. So Xenilasia, which means pushed out guests. Yes. You can push them out. Yep. So at any time, they could be kicked out of the city. And I guess it's Mahru's claim that this is part of the great refusal, mm. and it led to a petrification of Spartan culture. That's really interesting. Um, I got just to I point out that, um, so at this point, 550, so you know, Thermopylae is still 70, 70, years, 70 away. years away. 
it's just that that's it's so striking to me that 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 event which the what Leonidas and the Spartans are so famous for is well into as Moroza arguing into their decline yeah into their hardening Jeff, let's wrap up this portion of the episode with one final quote. Mm -hmm. And it looks to me like we're going to have to talk about Sparta some more. Okay, yeah. But here's a little food for thought. Okay. With this, that is the, the, the great refusal, went a gradual decline of culture. Sparta renounced the arts and even athletics because they were too disinterested, because they tended to develop strong personalities. Hmm. That's interesting. Too much free agency. Okay. Right? When the quarterback becomes too successful, yeah. he wants to get a bigger contract and leave the team. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. let's just dispense with athletics altogether because it tends to bring uh, about divisions between competitors, right? There's, right. There's the really good and then there's the goat. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So no more Laconian champions appeared in the Olympic Games. That's That that struck me as so fast. That's really telling, isn't it? It is, yeah. Sparta became an out-and-out -out military barracks, a city in the hands of a closed military caste that was kept permanently mobilized, entirely absorbed in its threefold task of defense, national, political, and social. Yeah. Um, what this reminded me, reminded me of when I was reading this. So I am personally slowly working through, um, working on a translation of Aristophanes' Lysistrata. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the Spartan characters that show up are usually seen to be, in, uh, are, are depicted as kind of like country bumpkins. Okay. And the kind of the dialect that Aristophanes used there would have been heard by an ancient Athenian as being uneducated. Right. And often when the, the Lysistrata is staged in English, um, that person is made like uh, intern like a, like a redneck, oh. a, a redneck, you know, um, you know, ma uh, word chewing uh, southerner, right? Uh, as a way to kind of uh, to reflect how maybe the Athenians thought about the Spartans' culture at that time, and so that seems to fit with kind of a Spartan a Spartan culture that had kind of rejected their education, rejected their arts, and now we're kind of these just these these brute soldiers dedicated just to one thing, right? Proud, as Maru said, of being semi-illiterate. Illiterate, exactly. And refusing to standardize spelling <laughs> on their inscriptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A yeah. smug archaism. Yes. A smug, a smug anarchy in the way that they... That's right. Things. Yes, that's fascinating. Well, Jeff, I think uh, we have to pull in our sails here we and do. Uh, come into port. There's more to say about Sparta. So we're gonna, uh, next week, we're going to pick this up, right? Yes. And there's a lot more to say about Maru's book. That's correct. And yep. we'll try to wrap up the first part. That is the first part of this book, which extends to seven chapters. Mm -hmm. So next week, we will quickly cover the rest of Sparta. We will look at um, some other features of classical education. We'll look at Plato and Isocrates. Okay. Sounds great. Excellent. But Dave, before we get out of here, uh, say something to the crowd about the Moss Method and LLPSI, would you? Yes, I will. Thank you for asking. Moss Method is a program I have developed to help you learn Greek. And I have a number of students participating. Yesterday we had the Moss Hours, the, the Moss Office Hours, I should say. The Office Hours. There you go. Yes. We had some folks from um, Switzerland, some folks from California, some folks from uh, North Carolina, from uh, Kansas, and the state of New York. Oh, very cool. And India. All, India, oh yes, my gosh. All getting yeah. together to study some Greek. Yeah. So if you'd like to, uh, you know, improve your study of Greek, if you have studied some before, but you don't really have confidence, I think that the extended and detailed explanations that are also quite systematic that I give in this course will really improve your confidence. And confidence is so necessary when it comes to learning a language. You've you got to have the sense that you're making progress. I can give you that. And this would also be a great program for someone starting with no knowledge. Absolutely. Right, exactly. The okay. first lesson is how to pronounce the alphabet. Yeah. Then it's uh, how to divide the words into syllables, syllabification. Hmm. And then reading some fantastic stories, including an account of the Greco-Persian Wars. And so characters like uh, Leonidas, of whom we've spoken. Excellent. So go to mossmethod.com, check out some of the, th the free... Um, instructional videos I have created. If you like the course, sign up. Uh, we're going to be having a sale coming up uh, for the Black Friday, Cyber Monday sale yes. coming up pretty soon. Yep. And uh, so you'd want to check that out, please. Excellent. And how about uh, if uh, people out there want to learn some Latin? That's correct. Well, I say that if you want to build a really large, strong structure, you have to have a solid and firm base. Mm -hmm. And um, I can help with that. I, this program takes you ab initio from the ground up. And it's based on Hans Orberg's Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. 
The course is divided into units. The first unit is chapters 1 through 9 of the Orberg book. And in it, I am teaching students in a live setting, and you get to watch uh, the recording of my teaching them so that you can learn from their successes, you can learn from their, you know, their mistakes without all of the pressure of actually being in the classroom. It's affordable. I think it's an excellent value. Go to latinperdm.com slash LLPSI and uh, check that out, please. And I also wanted to mention your Latin P- Per Diem series with the free videos. I just crossed 2,000 episodes? Is yes. That right? That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm I'm pleased with that. So I started that uh, eight years ago, believe wow. it or not, wow. in 2015, September of 2015, kind of on a lark. And uh, I have persisted. And so I just released um, episode 2,000 of my um, my free Latin instructional videos. So... I really think there's no reason not to learn Latin. If it's something you're interested in, this is a free resource. I think it can help you a great deal. Yeah, check that out, latinperdm.com. That's right. All right, uh, Dave. We've got to thank some people. Of course. Mishka, as always, our intrepid engineer, gets this, turns this around in record time, always makes us sound uh, better than we actually right. do. And what about these these these... These chuckleheads. Um, Are you talking about our generous and talented oh, musicians? I, 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 I have nothing but love for them. But, oh my uh, goodness, because... you've really fallen a long way, Winkle. <laughs> Scott Van Zandt and Ken Tamplin. How about yeah. these guys? They... So Scott plays the guitar uh, like nobody's business, mm-hmm. blues, and all kinds of uh, just really nice uh, arpeggios, yes. right? string bending, other kinds of fantastic things. Provides us with uh, free music at the beginning and at the end. Yep. Ken composed a lot of that. Gives us the bumper music for uh, the ads. So we just want to say thank you to these gentlemen. Yes, excellent. Um, and uh, audience, if you want to shout out, if you got a, a question, a comment, uh, don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can write to Dave, Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget that V. Or you can write to Jeff at adnauseum.com. Do not forget the V. Yep. Tell us what you like about the show. If you must, tell us what you don't like. Give us suggestions for future episodes. We got a suggestion a while ago. Uh, to do one on the Library of Alexandria. That'd be a great one. And yeah. I um, I made some preliminary steps toward that. Fantastic. So I can't remember which individual made that suggestion, but I want you to know you are not forgotten. Excellent. It is still in the hopper. Excellent. What about a t-shirt? Yeah, go to our, our website, oddnauseum.com, again with that V. Uh, go to our Lurch with Merch section. Pick, your, pick yourself uh, uh, up a, a t-shirt, uh, this wonderful kind of black and orange t-shirt with the Kwai Nokent Dokent on it. Get, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Heracles wrestling the Nemean lion. It's just a sharp look. Atlas yep. holding up the world. Yep. Quinocant Dokent. What hurts? Teaches. Teaches. There exactly. you go. Right. And Dave, next week? Part three. Part three. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And you have our story party shot, I believe. I think I do. Right. And this uh, comes from a very well-loved novel of the 20th century. So for me, this is not exactly the classics. I'm taking a real risk. This is recent literature, not classical. Uh, this is uh, the famous J.R.R. Tolkien and his delightful book, The Hobbit. And here's the quote. When he heard there was nothing to eat, he sat down and wept. Why did I ever wake up? He cried. Oh, man, I've been there. I have been there, too. That's great. I'd go back to sleep (laughs) if there's no breakfast. Of course. Thanks for listening. Thanks.